Hello, I'm Aaron Lord, and this is the Endocrine News Podcast. Today we're talking about growth hormone deficiency in adults and children. We'll be covering prevalence, clinical presentation, diagnosis, treatment, challenges, and more. Guiding us on this journey is today's guest, Dr. Mark Mullich. He is Professor Emeritus of Medicine at Northwestern University. But before we welcome him, let me first say that today's episode is made possible by an unrestricted educational grant from Novo Nordisk. So thank you. Now let's get into it. Welcome, Dr. Mullich. Thanks for being here. Well, thank you. Pleasure to be here with you. Today, we are talking about growth hormone deficiency, so let's begin with prevalence. Looking at both adults and children, how prevalent is growth hormone deficiency? Well, it's actually not very prevalent. There's only about 50,000 diagnosed adults in the U.S. with this, although there's probably a lot more than that that haven't really been diagnosed, and about 6,000 adults are diagnosed every year. If you think about the overall prevalence, this is about 2 to 3 per 100,000 population. And what do we currently know about the clinical presentation and diagnosis of growth hormone deficiency? Well, I think first we need to step back for a moment and talk about the differences between childhood onset and adult onset. If you think about children who don't have adequate amounts of growth hormone, the major manifestation for these children is that they don't grow. So that's how they present. So a child is not growing normally. Now, of course, there are many other reasons why a child may not grow normally. There may be other kinds of chronic conditions and diseases that they may have. But in fact, growth hormone deficiency is a major cause of children who really fail to grow. This is very different from adults who really don't present because of failure to grow. They've already grown, but they may present because they have an increase in fat, a decrease in muscle, decrease in energy, increase in fatigue, and overall a a relatively decreased quality of life. So clear the differences between children and adults. What about testing. What do clinical practice guidelines recommend for testing pediatric and adult patients? And are there any additional recommendations for those who are having traumatic brain injury? Well, I think one of the most important tests to measure are both something called IGF-1 and then growth hormone. So IGF-1 is a protein that's made by the liver and other tissues in response to growth hormone, and it really reflects growth hormone activity in the body. So in children, we look at their IGF-1 levels if they are very deficient, if they are only moderately deficient, or really if they're within the normal range. So you can have children who have short stature that's not due to growth hormone deficiency, yet they may in fact respond somewhat to growth hormone treatment. But children who are diagnosed with growth hormone deficiency, about a quarter of them have some sort of organic cause of that growth hormone deficiency, such as a pituitary disease, some sort of mutation in the growth hormone molecule or the growth hormone receptor molecule, tumors that are in the pituitary gland, things like that. And about three quarters of children have what's called idiopathic growth hormone deficiency, meaning that we really don't know what the cause of the growth hormone deficiency is in those children. This is very different from adults because adults don't really present with the symptoms. Usually we look at adults who already have some underlying cause that might predispose them to growth hormone deficiency. So if we see a person who has a pituitary tumor that has surgery or radiation, or as you mentioned, there may be head trauma from sports injuries or a car crash, that type of thing, 
where we suspect that they may develop growth hormone deficiency, then we will evaluate them for growth hormone deficiency rather than the sort of nonspecific symptoms that might cause them to be evaluated. The poor quality of life, the decrease in energy, that's not a reason to evaluate for growth hormone deficiency. They really have to have some underlying cause that might precipitate that evaluation. Are there any challenges when it comes to testing? Well, there are. I mean, the standard testing that we do is first we measure the IGF-1 levels. If those are completely in the normal range, then it's exceedingly unlikely that that person has growth hormone deficiency. But if they're in the lower part of the normal range or clearly deficient, then we will actually measure growth hormone. Now, growth hormone levels vary through the course of the day. They kind of go up and down. So we usually do stimulation tests. The classic standard test that we do is to administer insulin intravenously to lower the blood sugar level. And by lowering the blood sugar level to very low levels called hypoglycemia, that will stimulate growth hormone secretion. And we can measure those levels in the blood. And if they get to being a level over five, that's normal. If it doesn't get to over five, then that can be really deficiency. But that's a difficult test to do in some offices. And so that there are other tests that can be done. Uh, One is to give a hormone called glucagon which is normally used to raise blood sugar levels in people with diabetes who have low blood sugar, but it can't be given to test for growth hormone deficiency by raising growth hormone. There's also an oral preparation called misimorelin that can be given, and that's commonly given in the office to cause a rise in growth hormone. So we look at those levels of growth hormone to see if they match the criteria needed to diagnose growth hormone deficiency. So in addition to the testing that we've just talked about, the insulin test, the glucagon test, and mercimorelin, there actually is one other test that really has been done widely around the world, but it's not currently available in the U.S., and that is they give the combination of growth hormone-releasing hormone plus the amino acid arginine. So the growth hormone-releasing hormone is given by an injection, and then the arginine uh, is infused intravenously. And this test actually is very, very good. It has excellent sensitivity and specificity very similar to the insulin-induced hypoglycemia test. But GHRH is not available in the U.S. at the present time, so that's not a practical test at the moment. Once we have that diagnosis, how is growth hormone deficiency generally treated? Well, it's a little bit difficult because it has to be given by injection. This is usually with a daily injection, and this has now been done for many, many years. People take a daily injection of growth hormone. You start with a relatively low dose, and then gradually increase every four to eight weeks that growth hormone dosing until the person is feeling better. And in addition, we measure that IGF-1 level. Remember, this is the hormone that responds to growth hormone, and it starts at a low level. We gradually build it up to it's in the middle of the normal range. And so we monitor that every couple of months as we increase the dose. And then once the final dose is achieved with the IGF-1 level in the middle of the normal range, then we just continue on that dose for a number of years. Are there any new or emergent treatment options? And if so, how effective are they? Well, there are some some changes that have occurred over the last few years, and that's the development of long-acting growth hormone preparations that don't have to be given daily, but can be given only once a week. And we're hoping that that will improve adherence to therapy. One of the challenges, certainly in treating pediatric growth hormone deficiency, is the need to sort of reevaluate the children at the time that they've already reached their final height. So when the child that's already reached their final height, do they need to continue with growth hormone therapy? And so those who have a clear organic cause that we mentioned, the tumors and that type of thing, they're very likely going to be growth hormone deficient. 
and will need to continue growth hormone therapy. Those who have that idiopathic cause where we don't find a cause, most of them turn out to have normal growth hormone levels when we repeat the testing at the end of final height. Now, this time that we have this so-called transition from childhood to adulthood also coincides with the kid being 17 or 18 years old, and they're off to college. They're having lack of parental supervision of their care. All kinds of other things are happening when they leave home so that there may be a problem with adherence to these daily injections. And the hope is that these longer-acting preparations might be particularly beneficial for those kids who are leaving home or really only once a week injection may be a lot better than a once a day injection. Studies have now been done going out to a few years showing that these once a week injections are just as efficacious as the once daily injections and with a little bit better adherence to therapy so that people don't skip injections and they adhere to the therapy on a better basis. How effective is growth hormone therapy? Do we see impacts on quality of life and mortality? Growth hormone treatment is effective in the things that it's supposed to do so that you'll see a decrease in body fat, you see an increase in body muscle, you see an improvement in energy and an overall improvement in quality of life. No studies have yet shown that there's an improvement in mortality. We know that people who have an underactive pituitary from a variety of reasons do have a very slight increase in mortality, and it was hypothesized that that might be due to growth hormone deficiency. But as yet, replacement with growth hormone has not shown a reduction in that slight increase in mortality. Now, that may be because the studies haven't been done for long enough. You might need to do studies for 10 or 20 years. That may need large numbers of subjects to be treated for that because the difference would be quite small. So whether it improves mortality, I think, is still an open question. It certainly improves quality of life, and people do tend to feel better when they're taking growth hormone compared to before they started treatment. We've already talked about a few challenges, but what would you say is some of the biggest challenges in medically managing pediatric growth hormone deficiency? First of all, there's cost. I mean, growth hormone is costly, mm -hmm. so that that may be a problem from an insurance company perspective. And so, you know, having adequate coverage for this is really very important. But I think and a second aspect of this that I already alluded to is that pediatric patient who's sort of escaping from home and going off to college or whatever without that parental supervision of their care. So that is always a problem, not just for growth hormone deficiency, but for all kinds of diseases, other endocrine disease, diabetes, other kinds of things. So not just growth hormone, but that's certainly a reason to be concerned about adherence for growth hormone therapy. And again, the hope may be that these longer-acting preparations may improve that adherence over long term. And we talked about IGF-1 earlier, but what are some strategies to optimize those IGF-1 levels and patient complications? Well, what we'd like to do is to start off relatively slowly and gradually build up the IGF-1 levels. If you increase the dose too rapidly, it can cause some joint aching and muscle aching. And so we do this gradually over several months. It may take six or more months to get up to a final dose to avoid those adverse effects when you're starting therapy. But then as you're continuing therapy over the years, we do measure IGF-1 levels every 6 to 12 months to make sure that they're staying in the normal range. If we start to see a substantial decrease, then we might suspect noncompliance with taking their medication. And so this would be an indication that somebody's decreasing their dose. Another issue that comes up on a practical basis for adults who are taking growth hormone, and even for uh, young adults, is estrogens. So women who are taking oral estrogens, either in the form of oral contraceptives or 
postmenopausal estrogen therapy, that decreases the activity of growth hormone so that IGF-1 levels will go down. And so in somebody who's starting estrogen, they may need to increase their dose of growth hormone to maintain IGF-1 levels in a normal range. And conversely, in somebody who's been on estrogen and they stop them, then we may need to decrease the dose of growth hormone to keep the IGF-1 levels in the normal range. So that's a practical issue that often comes up. Drawing soon to our close, but I always like to look towards the future. How do you see or how do you hope to see treatment of growth hormone deficiency evolving over the next five or 10 years? Well, I think one aspect is to make sure that people who are growth hormone deficient get diagnosed so that clinicians who are seeing patients really have to keep an open mind to remember that growth hormone deficiency does exist. It can be part of a hypopituitarism that may occur from pituitary tumors, from surgery, from radiation, and particularly from head trauma. And, you know, sports head trauma, what we see in football players and boxers and the like, can cause hypopituitarism and growth hormone deficiency as well. So not all patients who have these issues ever get tested. And so there's probably a lot of patients who have growth hormone deficiency that never get diagnosed. So the important thing is to make that diagnosis. Once the diagnosis is made, we need to approach them to see whether they are candidates for growth hormone replacement, as we're talking about. Actually, I have that backwards, really. You need to talk to them and say, if you're growth hormone deficient, will you take growth hormone replacement? That's really the first question to ask. If you're not willing to take growth hormone replacement, of course, then there's no need to do the testing. But assuming that they are, then we will replace them. And then I think the second aspect is these newer preparations, whether they're going to improve long-term adherence. And of course, we have to look at the long-term safety of these newer preparations as well to make sure they're just as safe as the short-acting preparations that we currently use most of the time. It's very likely that they will be, and the three-year studies show that they will be, but you know, it'd be nice to look at five- and ten-year information to just ensure the safety of those newer preparations. You mentioned that diagnosis might not be happening as often as maybe it should. Is there anything that we should be thinking about to make sure that everyone who should be diagnosed is getting diagnosed? Well, I think one of the important things is to make sure that people who might have the condition do indeed get diagnosed appropriately. And that's going to require a lot of education, education of primary care doctors and sports medicine doctors, for example, to be sure that they know that these kinds of things can happen to make sure that those people really get appropriate testing. They may need referral to an endocrinologist for that additional testing. So I'm actually pretty excited, Dr. Mellish, because you're the first guest that we've had that actually has a quiz to help assess how much we know and how much we've learned from the talk today. So I'm going to hand it over to you to, to walk us through your quiz. Well, this will be an interesting uh, thing to try. Okay, well, let's ask a few questions here. So question number one, which of the following is an oral growth hormone stimulation test available in the United States? A, an insulin tolerance test. B, a glucagon stimulation test. C, a growth hormone releasing hormone plus arginine test. And four, Massimorelin. I'll give you a few seconds to think about the answer. The correct answer is Massimorelin. So remember what we've talked about. We talked about the insulin tolerance test, which indeed is the gold standard for diagnosing growth hormone deficiency, but it requires giving insulin to cause hypoglycemia. It's also contraindicated in patients who've got seizures 
or cardiovascular disease. The glucagon stimulation test, which I mentioned very briefly, is has to be given into the muscle to stimulate growth hormone releasing. The growth hormone releasing hormone and arginine test we really didn't talk about, but it's given by subcutaneous injection for the GHRH, and arginine is given intravenously, so that's really not appropriate answer here, and only Ms. Cimarellum is given orally. Okay, the next question. Which of the following is not an established benefit of growth hormone replacement therapy and growth hormone deficient adults? Remember, which is not an established benefit? A, improved quality of life. B, reduce mortality. C, increase muscle mass. And D, decrease fat mass. So again, give you a few seconds to think about this. So the answer here is reduce mortality. So first of all, we have to remember that there's a benefits of growth hormone therapy are only seen in adults who are truly growth hormone deficient. And those who aren't growth hormone deficient, there really aren't benefits. But the studies that have been done, these are randomized prospective studies, have shown significant improvements in muscle mass, in fat mass, and in quality of life. But there have not been any studies that have shown improvement in mortality from these prospective randomized studies. So there's some suggestion that improvement in IGF-1 levels may be associated with a decrease in mortality, but they really do not prove cause and effect. And reduced mortality has not been established as a clear benefit. So we can go on to a third question. What is the advantage of once-weekly growth hormone preparations versus once-daily injections? A, improved efficacy. B, improved adherence. C, an improved side effect profile. And D, less cost. Again, I'll give you a few seconds to think about this. So the answer here is really improved adherence. So now two preparations have already been approved over the last couple of years for the treatment of growth hormone deficiency in adults and children. Again, I mentioned these are given on a weekly basis. They have similar efficacy to the daily injections, but they may have actually increased rather than decreased costs. But we do know that there's some improvement in adherence in some of these studies, although really long-term studies are necessary to prove this in the long run. So that's the correct answer. All right, listeners, how did you do? Did you get them all right? Let me know. You can email me at podcast.endocrine.org. Let me know if you like the idea of having pop quizzes in these episodes. Maybe we'll do some of these in, in future episodes. I think this was fun. This has been fantastic. That brings us to the end, but a big thank you to Dr. Mark Mellich for coming and sharing with us today about growth hormone deficiency. Thank you so much. Well, thank you. And that's all for this episode. I hope you enjoyed hearing from Dr. Mullich. If you'd like to learn more about growth hormone deficiency, I invite you to check out a recent article in Endocrine News, the magazine, entitled Sex, Race, and Measuring Tape, Health Disparities and Growth Hormone Deficiency. I think you'll find it very interesting, and we'll link to it in today's episode description. We'll be back in a few weeks with another fascinating dive into the world of endocrinology. But until then... Thanks for listening. Endocrine News Podcasts are a free service of the Endocrine Society. To learn more or to become a member, visit the Society's website at www.endocrine.org.